Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. Today, a story from F. Marion Crawford. He was a prolific American writer. He was born in Italy in Baghdad de Luca on August 2, 1854, and he was the only son of the American sculptor Thomas Crawford and Louisa Cutler Ward. He spent much of his childhood traveling between America and Italy, but when he was old enough to choose for himself, he chose to spend most of his time in Italy, the country where many of his most acclaimed novels were set. Although much of his work was romantic fiction, F. Marion Crawford also wrote a number of short horror stories. The Screaming Skull was first published in Crawford's Wandering Ghosts Anthology in 1911. The story was inspired by the true tale of a screaming skull, which can still be found today at Bettiscon Manor in England. And now part one of The Screaming Skull by F. Marion Crawford. I have often heard it scream. No, I'm not nervous, I'm not imaginative, and I never believed in ghosts, unless that thing is one. Whatever it is, it hates me almost as much as it hated Luke Pratt, and it screams at me. If I were you, I would never tell ugly stories about ingenious ways of killing people, for you never can tell but that someone at the table may be tired of his or her nearest and dearest. I've always blamed myself for Mrs. Pratt's death, and I suppose I was responsible for it in a way, though heaven knows I never wished her anything but long life and happiness. If I had not told that story, she might be alive yet. That is why the thing screams at me, I fancy. She was a good little woman, with a sweet temper, all things considered, and a nice gentle voice, but I remember hearing her shriek once when she thought her little boy was killed by a pistol, though everyone was sure that it was not loaded. It was the same scream... "'Exactly the same, with a sort of rising quaver at the end. "'Do you know what I mean? Unmistakable. "'The truth is I had not realized that the doctor and his wife were not on good terms. "'They used to bicker a bit now and then when I was here, "'and I often noticed that little Mrs. Pratt got very red "'and bit her lip hard to keep her temper, "'while Luke grew pale and said the most offensive things. "'He was that sort when he was in the nursery, I remember, "'and afterwards at school.' He was my cousin, you know. That is how I came by this house. After he died and his boy Charlie was killed in South Africa, there were no relations left. Yes, it's a pretty little property, just the sort of thing for an old sailor like me who was taken to gardening. One always remembers one's mistakes much more vividly than one's cleverest things, doesn't one? I've often noticed it. I was dining with the Pratts one night when I told them the story that afterwards made so much difference. It was a wet night in November, and the sea was moaning. Hush, if you don't speak, you will hear it now. Do you hear the tide? 
gloomy sound, isn't it? Sometimes about this time of year. Hello, there it is. Don't be frightened, man. It won't eat you. It's only a noise, after all. But I'm glad you've heard it, because there are always people who think it's the wind, or my imagination, or something. You won't hear it again tonight, I fancy, for it doesn't often come more than once. Yes, that's right. Put another stick on the fire, and a little more stuff into that weak mixture you're so fond of. Do you remember old Blocklot the carpenter on that German ship that picked us up when the Klontarf went to the bottom? We were hove to in a howling gale one night, as snug as you please, with no land within five hundred miles, and the ship coming up and falling off as regularly as clockwork. Yes, it was on a night like this, when I was at home for a spell, waiting to take the Olympia out on her first trip. It was on the next voyage that she broke the record, you remember? But that dates it. Ninety-two was the year. Early in November. The weather was dirty. Pratt was out of temper, and the dinner was bad. Very bad indeed, which didn't improve matters. And cold, which made it worse. The poor little lady was very unhappy about it, and insisted on making a Welsh rarebit on the table to counteract the raw turnips and the half-boiled mutton. Pratt must have had a hard day. Perhaps she'd lost a patient. At all events, he was in a nasty temper. "'My wife is trying to poison me, you see,' he said. "'She'll succeed some day.' I saw that she was hurt, and I made believe to laugh, and said that Mrs. Pratt was much too clever to get rid of her husband in such a simple way. And then I began to tell them about Japanese tricks with spun glass and chopped horsehair and the like. Pratt was a doctor, and knew a lot more than I did about such things, but that only put me on my mettle. And I told a story about a woman in Ireland who did for three husbands before anyone suspected foul play. Did you ever hear that tale? The fourth husband managed to keep awake and caught her, and she was hanged. How did she do it? She drugged them, and poured melted lead into their ears through a little horn funnel when they were asleep. No, that's the wind whistling. It's backing up to the southward again. I can tell by the sound. Besides, the other thing doesn't often come more than once in an evening, even at this time of year, the time when it happened. Yes, it was in November. Poor Mrs. Pratt died suddenly in her bed not long after I dined here. I can fix the date, because I got the news in New York by the steamer that followed the Olympia when I took her out on the first trip. You had the Leofric that same year. Yes, I remember. What a pair of old buffers were coming to be, you and I. Nearly fifty years since we were apprentices together on the Kluntarf. Shall you ever forget, old Blocklot? Ha! Take a little more, with all that water. It's the old Hulst camp I found in the cellar when this house came to me. The same I brought Luke from Amsterdam five and twenty years ago. He had never touched a drop of it. Perhaps he's sorry about that now. Poor fellow. Where was I? I told you that Mrs. Pratt died suddenly. Yes. Luke must have been lonely here after she was dead, I should think. I came to see him now and then, and he looked worn and nervous, and told me that his practice was growing too heavy for him, though he wouldn't take an assistant on any account. Years went on, his son was killed in South Africa, and after that he began to be queer. There was something about him not like other people. I believe he kept his senses in his profession to the end. There was no complaint of his having made mad mistakes in cases, or anything of that sort. "'but he had a look about him. 
"'Luke was a red-headed man with a pale face when he was young, "'and he was never stout. "'In middle age he turned to sandy gray, "'and after his son died he grew thinner and thinner, "'till his head looked like a skull with parchment stretched over it very tight, "'and his eyes had a sort of glaze in them "'that was very disagreeable to look at. "'He had an old dog that poor Mrs. Pratt had been fond of, "'and they used to follow her everywhere. "'He was a bulldog, as I remember, "'and the sweetest-tempered beast you ever saw.' "'though he had a way of hitching his upper lip "'behind one of his fangs that frightened strangers. "'Sometimes of an evening, Pratt and Bumble, "'that was the dog's name, "'used to sit and look at each other a long time, "'thinking about old times, I suppose, "'when Luke's wife used to sit on that chair you've got. "'That was always her place. "'And this was the doctor's, where I'm sitting. "'Bumble used to climb up with a footstool. "'He was old and fat by that time, "'and couldn't jump much, "'and his teeth were getting shaky.' He would look steadily at Luke, and Luke looked steadily at the dog, his face growing more and more like a skull with two little coals for eyes. And after about five minutes or so, though it may have been less, old Bumble would suddenly begin to shake all over, and all of a sudden he would set up an awful howl, as if he'd been shot, and tumble out of the easy chair and trot away, and hide himself under the sideboard, and lie there, making odd noises. Considering Pratt's looks in those last months, the thing is not surprising, you know. I'm not nervous or imaginative, but I can quite believe he might have sent a sensitive woman into hysterics. His head looked so much like a skull and parchment. At last I came down one day before Christmas. When my ship was in dock, I had three weeks off. Bumble wasn't about, and I said casually that I supposed the old dog was dead. Yes, Pratt answered, and I thought there was something odd in his tone, even before he went on after a little pause. I killed him, he said presently. I couldn't stand it any longer. I asked what it was that Luke couldn't stand, although I guessed well enough. He had a way of sitting in her chair and glaring at me and then howling. Luke shivered a little. He didn't suffer at all, poor old Bumble. He went on in a hurry, as if he thought I might imagine he'd been cruel. I put dionine into his drink to make him sleep soundly, and then I chloroformed him gradually, so that he couldn't have felt suffocated even if he was dreaming. It's been quieter ever since then. I wondered what he meant, but the words slipped out as if he couldn't help saying them. I've understood since. He meant that he did not hear that noise so often after the dog was out of the way. Perhaps he thought at first that it was old Bumble in the yard howling at the moon. Though it's not that kind of noise, is it? Besides, I know what it is. If Luke didn't, it's only a noise after all, and a noise never hurt anybody yet. "'but he was much more imaginative than I am. "'No doubt there really is something about this place "'that I don't understand. "'But when I don't understand a thing, I call it a phenomenon, "'and I don't take it for granted that it's going to kill me, as he did. "'I don't understand everything, by long odds, nor do you, "'nor does any man who's been to sea. "'We used to talk of tidal waves, for instance, "'and we could not account for them. "'Now we account for them by calling them submarine earthquakes.' and we branch off into fifty theories, any one of which might make earthquakes quite comprehensible if we only knew what they were. I fell in with one of them once, and the inkstand flew straight up from the table against the ceiling of my cabin. The same thing happened to Captain Lecky. I dare say you've read about it in his wrinkles. Very good. If that sort of thing took place ashore, in this room, for instance, a nervous person would talk about spirits. "'and levitation, 
"'and fifty things that mean nothing. "'Instead of just quietly setting it down as a phenomenon "'that hasn't been explained yet. "'My view of that voice, you see. "'We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. "'And now back to the screaming skull. "'Besides, what is there to prove that Luke killed his wife? "'I would not even suggest such a thing to anyone but you.' After all, there was nothing but the coincidence that poor little Mrs. Pratt died suddenly in her bed a few days after I told that story at dinner. She was not the only woman who ever died like that. Luke got the doctor over from the next parish, and they agreed that she had died of something the matter with her heart. Why not? It's common enough. Of course, there was the ladle. I never told anybody about that, and it made me start when I found it in the cupboard in the bedroom. It was new, too. A little tinned iron ladle that had not been in the fire more than once or twice. And there was some lead in it that had been melted and stuck to the bottom of the bowl, all gray, with hardened dross on it. But that proves nothing. A country doctor is generally a handyman who does everything for himself. And Luke may have had a dozen reasons for melting a little lead in a ladle. He was fond of sea fishing, for instance, and he may have cast a sinker for the night line. Perhaps it was a weight for the whole clock, or something like that. All the same, when I found it, I had a rather queer sensation, because it looked so much like the thing I had described when I told them the story. Do you understand? It affected me unpleasantly, and I threw it away. It's at the bottom of the sea a mile from the spit, and it'll be jolly well rusted beyond recognizing if it's ever washed up by the tide. You see... Luke must have bought it in the village, years ago, for the man sells just such ladles still. I suppose they're used in cooking. In any case, there was no reason why an inquisitive housemaid should find such a thing lying about, with lead in it, and wonder what it was, and perhaps talk to the maid who heard me tell the story at the dinner, for that girl married the plumber's son in the village, and might remember the whole thing. You understand me, don't you? Now that Luke Pratt is dead and gone... "'and lies buried beside his wife, "'with an honest man's tombstone at his head, "'I should not care to stir up anything "'that could hurt his memory. "'They're both dead, and their son, too. "'There was trouble enough about Luke's death as it was. "'How? "'He was found dead on the beach one morning, "'and there was a coroner's inquest. "'There were marks on his throat, "'but he hadn't been robbed.' The verdict was that he'd come to his end by the hands or teeth of some person or animal unknown. It's exactly how it was said. For half the jury thought it might have been a big dog that had thrown him down and gripped his windpipe, though the skin of his throat wasn't broken. No one knew at what time he'd gone out, nor where he had been. He was found lying on his back above high water mark, and that old cardboard bandbox that had belonged to his wife lay under his hand, open. The lid had fallen off. He seemed to have been carrying home a skull. No one knew at what time he'd gone out, nor where he had been. Doctors are fond of collecting such things. It had rolled out and lay near his head, and it was a remarkably fine skull, rather small, beautifully shaped, and very white, with perfect teeth. That is to say, the upper jaw was perfect, but there was no lower one at all when I first saw it. Yes, I found it here when I came. You see... It was very white and polished, like a thing meant to be kept under a glass case, and the people did not know where it came from, nor what to do with it. 
"'so they put it back into the bandbox "'and set it on the shelf of the cupboard in the best bedroom. "'And, of course, they showed it to me when I took possession. "'I was taken down to the beach, too, "'to be shown the place where Luke was found. "'And the old fisherman explained just how he was lying "'and the skull beside him. "'The only point he could not explain "'was why the skull had rolled up the sloping sand "'towards Luke's head instead of rolling downhill to his feet. "'It did not seem odd to me at the time.' but I've often thought of it since, for the place is rather steep. I'll take you there tomorrow if you like. I made a sort of cairn of stones there afterwards. When he fell down, or was thrown down, whichever happened, the bandbox struck the sand, and the lid came off, and the thing came out and ought to have rolled down. But it didn't. It was close to his head, almost touching it, and turned with the face towards it. I say it didn't strike me as odd when the man told me, but I could not help thinking about it afterwards, again and again, until I saw a picture of it all when I closed my eyes. And then I began to ask myself why the plaguey thing had rolled up instead of down, and why it had stopped near Luke's head instead of anywhere else, a yard away, anywhere. You naturally want to know what conclusion I reached, don't you? None that at all explained the rolling, at all events. "'but I got something else into my head, after a time, "'that made me feel downright uncomfortable. "'Oh, I don't mean as to anything supernatural. "'There may be ghosts, or there may not be. "'If there are, I'm not inclined to believe "'that they can hurt living people, except by frightening them. "'And for my part, I'd rather face any shape of ghost "'than a fog in the channel when it's crowded. "'No, what bothered me was just a foolish idea, that's all.' and I cannot tell how it began, nor what it made it grow till it turned into a certainty. I was thinking about Luke and his poor wife one evening over my pipe and a dull book, when it occurred to me that the skull might possibly be hers, and I've never been able to get rid of that thought since. You'll tell me there's no sense in it, no doubt, that Mrs. Pratt was buried like a Christian and is lying in the churchyard where they put her, and it's perfectly monstrous to suppose her husband kept her skull in her old bandbox in his bedroom. All the same, in the face of reason and common sense and probability, I'm convinced that he did. Doctors do all sorts of queer things that would make men like you and me feel creepy. And those are just the things that don't seem probable, nor logical, nor sensible to us. Then, don't you see, if it really was her skull, poor woman, the only way of accounting for his having it is that he really killed her, and did it in that way as the woman killed her husband's in the story, and that he was afraid there might be an examination some day which would betray him. You see, I told that too, and I believe it had really happened some fifty or sixty years ago. They dug up the three skulls, you know, and there was a small lump of lead rattling about in each one. That was what hanged the woman. Luke remembered that, I'm sure. I didn't want to know what he did when he thought of it. "'My taste never ran in the direction of horrors, "'and I don't fancy you care for them either, do you? "'No. "'If you did, you might supply what is wanting to this story. "'It must have been rather grim, eh? "'I wish you did not see the whole thing so distinctly, "'just as everything must have happened. "'He took it the night before she was buried, I'm sure, "'after the coffin had been shut, "'and when the servant girl was asleep.' I would bet anything that when he'd got it, he put something under the sheet in its place to fill up and look like it. What do you suppose he put there under the sheet? 
I don't wonder you take me up on what I'm saying. First, I tell you that I don't want to know about what happened, and that I hate to think about horrors. And then I describe the whole thing to you as if I'd seen it. I'm quite sure that it was her work bag that he put there. I remember that bag very well, for she always used it of an evening. It was made of brown plush, and when it was stuffed full, it was about the size of, you know, a skull. Yes, there I am, at it again. You may laugh at me, but you don't live here alone, where it was done. And you didn't tell Luke the story about the melted lead. I'm not nervous, I tell you, but sometimes I begin to feel that I understand why some people are. I dwell on all this when I'm alone, and I dream of it. And when that thing screams, frankly, I don't like the noise any more than you do. Though I should be used to it by this time. I ought not to be nervous. I've sailed in a haunted ship. There was a man in the top, and two-thirds of the crew died of the West Coast fever inside of ten days after we anchored. But I was all right, then and afterwards. I've seen some ugly sights, too, just as you have, and all the rest of us. But nothing ever stuck in my head the way this does. You see, I tried to get rid of the thing. But it doesn't like that. It wants to be there in its place, in Mrs. Pratt's bandbox, in the cupboard, in the best bedroom. It's not happy anywhere else. How do I know that? Because I've tried it. You don't suppose that I've not tried, do you? As long as it's there, it only screams now and then, and generally at this time of year. But if I put it out of the house, it goes on all night, and no servant will stay here twenty-four hours. As it is, I've often been left alone, and I've been obliged to shift for myself for a fortnight at a time. No one from the village would ever pass a night under the roof now. And as for selling the place, or even letting it, that's out of the question. The old women say that if I stay here I shall come to a bad end myself before long. Well, I'm not afraid of that. You smile at the mere idea that anyone could take such nonsense seriously? Quite right. It's utterly blatant nonsense. I agree with you. Didn't I tell you that it's only a noise after all when you started and looked around as if you expected to see a ghost standing behind your chair? You did, didn't you? I may be all wrong about the skull, and I like to think that I am when I can. It may be just a fine specimen which Luke got somewhere long ago, and what rattles about inside when you shake it may be nothing but a pebble, or a bit of hard clay, or anything. Skulls that have lain long in the ground generally have something inside them that rattles, don't they? No, I've never tried to get it out. Whatever it is, I'm afraid it might be lead. And if it is, I don't want to know the fact, for I'd much rather not be sure. If it really is lead, I killed her quite as much as if I'd done the deed myself. Anybody can see that, I should think. As long as I don't know for certain, I had the consolation of saying that it's all utterly ridiculous nonsense, that Mrs. Pratt died a natural death, and that the beautiful skull belonged to Luke when he was a student in London. But if I were quite sure, I believe I should have to leave the house. Indeed I do, most certainly. As it is, I had to give up trying to sleep in the best bedroom, and that's where the cupboard is. You ask me why I don't throw it into the pond? Yes, but please don't call it a confounded bugbear. It doesn't like being called names. There. Right there. Lord, what a shriek! I told you so. You're quite pale, man. 
Fill up your pipe and draw your chair nearer to the fire. Take some more drink. Old Holland's never hurt anybody yet. I've seen a Dutchman in Java drink half a jug of Hull's Camp in the morning without turning a hair. I don't take much rum myself, because it doesn't agree with my rheumatism. But you're not rheumatic, and it won't damage you. Besides, it's a very damp night outside. The wind is howling again, and it will soon be in the southwest. Do you hear how the windows rattle? The tide must have turned, too, by the moaning. We should not have heard the thing again if you had not said that. I'm pretty sure we should not. Oh, yes, if you choose to describe it as a coincidence, you're quite welcome. But I would rather that you should not call the thing names again, if you don't mind. It may be that the poor little woman hears, and perhaps it hurts her, don't you know? Ghosts? No. You don't call anything a ghost that you can take in your hands and look at in broad daylight, and that rattles when you shake it, do you know? But it's something that hears and understands. There's no doubt about that. I tried sleeping in the best bedroom when I first came to the house just because it was the best and most comfortable. But I had to give it up. It was their room. And there's the big bed she died in. And the cupboard is in the thickness of the wall, near the head, on the left. That's where it likes to be kept, on its bandbox. I only used the room for a fortnight after I came. And then I turned out and took the little room downstairs, next to the surgery where Luke used to sleep when he expected to be called to a patient during the night. I was always a good sleeper ashore. Eight hours is my dose. Eleven to seven when I'm alone. Twelve to eight when I have a friend with me. But I could not sleep after three o'clock in the morning in that room. A quarter past, to be accurate, as a matter of fact. I timed it with my old pocket chronometer, which still keeps good time. And it was always exactly seventeen minutes past three. I wonder. I wonder if that was the hour when she died. It was not what you have heard. If it had been that, I could not have stood it two nights. It was just a start and a moan and hard breathing for a few seconds in the cupboard, and it never could have waked me under ordinary circumstances, I'm sure. I suppose you're like me in that, and we're just like other people who have been to sea. No natural sounds disturb us at all. Not all the racket of a square rigger hove to in a heavy gale, or rolling on her beam ends before the wind. But if a lead pencil gets adrift and rattles in the drawer of your cabin table, you're awake in a moment. Just so. You always understand. Very well, the noise in the cupboard was no louder than that. But it waked me instantly. I said it was like a, a start. I know what I mean. But it's hard to explain without seeming to talk nonsense. Of course, you can't exactly hear a person start at the most. You might hear the quick drawing of the breath somewhere between the parted lips and the closed teeth, and the almost imperceptible sound of clothing that moves suddenly, though very slightly. It was like that. You know how one feels what a sailing vessel is going to do two or three seconds before it does it? When one has the wheel? Riders say the name of a horse, but that's less strange because the horse is a live animal with feelings of its own. And only poets and landsmen talk about a ship being alive and all that. But I've always felt somehow that besides being a steaming machine or a sailing machine for carrying weights, a vessel at sea is a sensitive instrument and a means of communication between nature and man, and most particularly the man at the wheel, if she's steered by hand. 
She takes your impressions directly from wind and sea, tide and stream, and transmits them to the man's hand. Just as the wireless telegraphy, he picks up the interrupted currents aloft and turns them out below in the form of a message. You see what I'm driving at. I felt that something started in the cupboard, and I felt, I felt it so vividly that I heard it, though there may have been nothing to hear, and the sound inside my head waked me suddenly. But I really heard the other noise. It was as if it were muffled inside a box, as far away as if it came through a long-distance telephone, and yet I knew that it was inside the cupboard near the head of my bed. My hair didn't bristle, my blood didn't run cold that time. I simply resented being waked up by something that had no business to make a noise, any more than a pencil should rattle in the drawer of my cabin table on board ship. For I did not understand. I just supposed that the cupboard had some communication with the outside air, and that the wind had got in and was moaning through it with a sort of very faint screech. I struck a light and looked at my watch, and it was seventeen minutes past three. Then I turned over and went to sleep on my right ear. That's my good one. I'm pretty deaf with the other, for I struck the water with it when I was a lad in diving from a four-topsail yard. Silly thing to do, but the result is very convenient when I want to go to sleep when there's a noise. Thanks for joining us, everyone, for part one of The Screaming Skull by F. Marion Crawford. Stay tuned next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for the conclusion of The Screaming Skull. We're always looking for new reviews at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. If you're enjoying our stories, please do take a moment and send us a review. We would appreciate that very much, and it helps new listeners to find us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We'll be back next Sunday night with part two of The Screaming Skull. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. (laughs) 